0: This message comes from NPR sponsor Stripe. Tap to pay on iPhone, and Stripe can help you grow your business's revenue and reach through accepting more in-person, contactless payments right from an iPhone. To learn how, visit Stripe.com tap iPhone. Hey, it's Manoush here. And as we have navigated big global changes over the past few months, you've probably had to leave behind some of the smaller daily rituals that used to make you feel Connected, like having dinner with friends or even just chatting to strangers in line at the store. And as a result, you may be feeling a lot of loneliness during this time, which is totally normal, by the way. So that's exactly what we're exploring in today's episode. It's all about why we experience loneliness, how loneliness affects us during a pandemic. And some creative solutions you can try out in your own life to feel a bit more connected during this time of isolation. This episode is called Meditations on Loneliness, and it originally aired in April. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. and NPR. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and recently I was reading a book. Well, actually, a graphic novel.
2: A spaceship appears, seemingly out of nowhere, carrying the night sky with it. Out of the spaceship topples a gaggle of aliens, all looking exactly the same.
0: It was about a little alien called Jomni.
2: Except one particular alien, who looks slightly the same but also exactly different from all the other aliens.
0: This is writer Johnny's son reading from his book, Everyone's an Alien, When You're an
2: Alien Too. So, you're leaving me here all alone? Asks the slightly different alien. Well, we will check on you in case you mess anything up, says the fifth alien in response. Okay, says the slightly different alien, not reassured by that response at all.
0: In the story, Jomney is sent to Earth to study its creatures, and he feels afraid and lost.
2: Eventually... Jomney goes from searching for the receding spaceship among the stars to simply watching the stars themselves. Jomney looks down at the ground, at the Earth. I feel alone, the alien says.
0: So Jomney begins to explore, and he meets all sorts of Earth creatures, and yet he still feels empty and invisible.
2: F-R-I-E-N-D. Friend. Friend. The bees and the flying caterpillar all fly away together into the sky where Jomni cannot follow. I wish I had friends, Jomni says out loud.
0: This might sound like a kid's book, but it's for grown-ups, too, because Jomni's deep loneliness is something pretty much all of us have felt, especially now.
2: Yeah, so Jomni is a character I created um, sort of out of a moment of intense loneliness in my own life. Um, I had started uh, my PhD at MIT and was, was feeling very much like an alien and an outsider in this new place and in this new community. And I think the way I responded was sort of withdrawing and was to find more and more solitude, which I think sometimes is great, but I think it also, the combination of factors also led to an, an immense loneliness.
0: Do you remember what that felt like? Like, is it very clear in your mind?
2: Yeah, I think sometimes when you're experiencing loneliness, you feel like you are you are on this alien planet and you're on this sort of, in this world that doesn't feel like anything you have known or you're familiar with. And I think one of the things that I'm always fascinated and sort of try to interrogate about my own loneliness is um, how it feels like... Like, this immensity of nothingness um, can feel suffocating and can feel like there's so much weight on you at all times. Like, I, I remember reading about like planets where the gravity is different. Um, everything is pushing in on you, and you can't look at it, um, but somehow all this sort of empty space around you is the thing that's, that's causing all that, that weight. I had a lifeline of sorts.
0: Here's Johnny Sun on the TED stage. I
2: was writing jokes for years and years and sharing them on social media. And I found that I was turning to doing this more and more. Now, for many people, the internet can feel like a lonely place. It can feel like this, a big, endless, expansive void where you can constantly call out to it, but no one's ever listening. But I actually found a comfort in speaking out to the void. I found in sharing my feelings with the void, eventually the void started to speak back. And it turns out that the void isn't this endless, lonely expanse at all, but instead it's full of all sorts of other people, also staring out into it and also wanting to be heard. Now when someone shares that they feel sad or afraid or alone, for example, it actually makes me feel less alone, not by getting rid of any of my loneliness, but by showing me that I am not alone in feeling lonely. And as a writer and as an artist, I care very much about making this comfort of being vulnerable a communal thing, something that we can share with each other. I'm excited about externalizing the internal, about taking those invisible personal feelings that I don't have words for, holding them to the light, putting words to them, and then sharing them with other people in the hopes that it might help them find words to find their feelings as well. For example, a few months ago, I posted this app idea for a dog-walking service, where a dog shows up at your door and you have to get out of the house and go for a walk. (laughs) If there are app developers in the audience, please find me after the talk. Um, Or I like to share every time I feel anxious about sending an email. When I sign my emails best, it's short for, I am trying my best, which is short for, please don't hate me, I promise I'm trying my best. Or my answer to the classic icebreaker, If I could have dinner with anyone, dead or alive, I would. I am very lonely. (laughs) And I find that when I post things like these online, the reaction is very similar. People come together to share a laugh, um, to share in that feeling, and then to disperse just as quickly. Uh, But yes, (laughs) leaving me once again alone. (laughs) Um, But... I think sometimes these little gatherings can be quite meaningful. For example, when I graduated from architecture school and I moved to Cambridge, I posted this question. How many people in your life have you already had your last conversation with? And I was thinking about my own friends who had moved away to different cities and different countries even and how hard it would be for me to keep in touch with them. But other people started replying and sharing their own experiences. Somebody talked about a family member they had a falling out with. Someone talked about a loved one who had passed away quickly and unexpectedly. Someone else talked about their friends from school who had moved away as well. And eventually, we got this little tiny micro-community. It felt like this support group formed of all sorts of people coming together. And I think every time we post online, every time we do this, there's a chance that these little micro-communities can form. There's a chance that all sorts of different creatures can come together and be drawn together. And sometimes, through the muck of the internet, you get to find a kindred spirit. Sometimes, if you're lucky, you get to meet another alien.
0: We humans are inherently social creatures. We evolved to thrive in tight knit communities. But today, a culture of individualism and isolation makes a lot of us feel cut off from the rest of the world. And that was even before social distancing, quarantines, and lockdowns became the norm. So, on the show today, we're talking about what it feels like to experience loneliness and how to overcome it when the only way we can connect is online. When Johnny's son decided to open up on social media and share his vulnerability, it struck a chord. He got 600,000 Twitter followers. But more importantly, he also ended up building a little community.
2: At some point, I started tweeting about like going to therapy and talking to my therapist. And it was something that, um, for me, I think, I had never thought that therapy was, like, an option for me in a way mm. um, and then it was actually in at MIT that I started seeing a therapist. Um, but one of the most meaningful like the most meaningful types of messages I get on Twitter was are when I remember getting one tweet in particular that was someone who said I grew up never knowing that therapy was an option for me and I was terrified of of reaching out and trying to get help and trying to go see a therapist um, but seeing you tweet about. Um, your experiences kind of led me to to think that it might help me. And so I booked my first therapy appointment. Stuff like that makes me it makes me acknowledge how the stuff that you put online and the stuff that you put anywhere um, can have like these immense impacts on people's lives. Mm. When you start to realize there are people that share the same space as you, there's sort of like that that natural, connection.
0: And and it sounds like you took that connection combined Mm -hmm. with therapy and you really found a way forward out of the loneliness.
2: I think so. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to it's always I feel like it's always hard to to say like, oh, I like I I solved it. I cured it. I defeated it. (laughs) No Um, more (laughs) loneliness. Exactly. Because I think it's I think that sort of thing is my belief is that loneliness is like an intrinsic kind of human state in a way and it's it's always it's always going to be there Um, but for me I think the the help is kind of being able to understand how to process it and understand like the healthy ways that I can approach it as opposed to I think the I think if you start getting into those thoughts of like how do I cure loneliness and how do I kind of defeat it um, when it inevitably comes back it's even more crushing and I think I've had those Thought processes and I've been like, wow, I'll never feel lonely again. And then when it comes back, you're like, oh, no, now everything I've done is a lie. I am feeling lonely
0: again. (laughs) Man, you were gone. (laughs) No, so it's (laughs) like making peace with it so that when lonely does show up, you're like, oh, hey, you. It's been a while.
2: Exactly. And it's like, oh, I understand this feeling. I know I sort of am more aware of my way around it. I know sort of how I can talk about it and I have people that I can share those feelings with and i think like one of the big sort of like lies that loneliness tells you when it visits you is to to say like this you're the only person in the world who's feeling this way and everyone else will think you are strange and weird for feeling this way so never tell anyone about it sometimes that lie is like the hardest thing to fight against um but i think as 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 you can work to break out of that mentality, I think it it can help. When I was feeling particularly sad and hopeless about the world, I shouted out to the void, to the lonely darkness. I said, at this point, logging onto social media feels like holding someone's hand at the end of the world. And this time, instead of the void responding, it was people who showed up who started replying to me and then who started talking to each other, and slowly this little, tiny community formed. Everybody came together to hold hands. And so, yes, even though life is bad and everyone's sad and one day we're all going to die, in the midst of it all, in these dangerous and unsure times, I think the thing that we have to hold on to is other people. Behind Jomni, all the animals and creatures of Earth gather closer together under the bright, twinkling, starry sky, talking to each other, hugging, laughing. Jomni turns around to have one last look at all the Earth creatures and is filled with happiness. Goodbye, Jomni whispers quietly. The spaceship takes off and Jomni goes home, leaving behind the only place that the alien ever truly belonged
0: That's writer and artist Johnny Sun. His book is called Everyone's an Alien When You're an Alien Too. You can find his full talk at TED.com. On the show today, meditations on loneliness. I'm Manush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. This message comes from NPR sponsor Grammarly. 96% of users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing. Save time with one click and go from editing drafts in hours to seconds. By understanding your writing and context, Grammarly provides relevant, personalized suggestions to help your team make their point and move faster. Make a bigger impact at work. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com slash podcast. That's grammarly.com slash podcast. Grammarly, easier said, done.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and on the show today, ideas about loneliness. If you've been feeling lonely during this time of social distancing, you're actually in good company. But how does a lack of social connection affect us, affect our health?
3: It's a huge problem because real social contact is a biological need, like eating, drinking, or sleeping. And our bodies react to the loss of that interaction the way we react to hunger. It's physically painful. It's damaging. It's even dangerous long term. This is Susan Pinker.
0: She's a developmental psychologist who studies loneliness.
3: We are a social species. We need to have social contact. We need to see the whites in each other's eyes to know that we trust people. We need to have a slap on the back or a handshake or a hug. So when we're isolated from people, we're missing all of those signals. And they're very, very basic to our evolution as a social species. Susan Pinker explains more from the TED stage. Social isolation is the public health risk of our time. Now, a third of the population says they have two or fewer people to lean on. Face-to-face contact releases a whole cascade of neurotransmitters. And like a vaccine, they protect you now in the present and well into the future. Shaking hands, giving somebody a high five is enough to release oxytocin, which increases your level of trust and it lowers your stress. And dopamine is generated, which gives us a little high, and it kills pain. It's like a a naturally produced morphine. So clean air, which is great, it doesn't predict how long you will live. How much exercise you get is next, still only a moderate predictor. And getting towards the top predictors are two features of your social life. First, your close relationships. These are the people that you can call on for a loan if you need money suddenly, or who will sit with you if you're having an existential crisis, if you're in despair. And then something that surprised me, something that's called social integration. And these mean both your weak and your strong bonds, so not just the people you're really close to who mean a lot to you, But, like, do you talk to the guy who every day makes you your coffee? Do you talk to the postman? Do you talk to the woman who walks by your house every day with her dog? Those interactions are one of the strongest predictors of how long you live. Yet now, almost a quarter of the population says they have no one to talk to.
0: Susan, you gave your talk way before the pandemic, before quarantines and social distancing. And loneliness was already a serious problem.
3: Why? Well, there's so many good reasons for that, and we'll start with a basic one. You know, we have more people who live alone now than we've ever had in history. We're often working alone. A lot of people who are lonely work either alone or in a gig economy. If you're in poor health or if you're actually poor, you tend to be lonelier. A lot of us used to go to church or synagogue, um, that was a place you went to with your family, you saw friends there, you saw part of your community there. And the fastest growing religion in the United States now is secularism. And now just, we do fewer things with our family. We have fewer family meals, Um, a lot of the time there's just no one home. And digital contact is not helping. Actually, it's making us more lonely and we're getting more and more evidence that shows that it's really not a good replacement for face-to-face contact.
0: Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask because digital contact is all we have right now and we can't even try to remedy loneliness with actual in-person interaction. So does digital contact help at all? Does it count even a little bit?
3: There's a huge difference between interacting in person and interacting online. You don't get the same kind of flood of neurochemicals. It doesn't feel as good. The body language where you echo each other's movements is missing. And even ways of connecting online are different one from the other. So, for example, when you have a video chat, it's better to be on a platform where You're not going to have any kind of delay in the audio or you're not going to have the image freezing, which we all know it's frustrating, but it's extremely important for the kind of give and take of a real conversation. Social media like Facebook or Instagram or that sort of thing are just not as good because they're much more static. And we do have evidence now that the more people are on social networks, the more depressed they feel, the worse they feel. So if you want to feel better, there are ways to do it using technology that will hit the spot, and there are ways that will make you feel more isolated.
0: And what about introverts? Because I'm actually hearing some people say that they're getting used to social isolation, kind of like, well, I never needed much socializing anyway. Is loneliness any different for those people?
3: Well, we started off our discussion talking about how social contact is a biological need. So when you say you're an introvert and you don't need social contact, that's like saying, you know, you have a small appetite so you don't need to eat, ever. Mm. If you are a true introvert, what's important is choosing the kind of social contact that is good for you. And a lot of that is about control. So you're not stuck, you know, glued to your seat at a dinner party for seven hours where you can't get up. That's torture. Right. Right. That is torture. (laughs) Introverts do so much better when they can choose when to arrive and when to leave. That's much more comfortable for introverts.
0: You know, in your talk, you spoke about how weak bonds are really important. And that's actually one of the things that I've really been missing during this time. Like those people who just kind of pepper my life, like that redheaded guy with the beard who I see every day, or, well, I used to see him every day. I have no idea what his name is, but he and I were clearly on the same schedule. Or like the woman at the coffee shop who made me coffee every day. It feels strange that all those weak links are suddenly gone.
3: Absolutely, Manusha. And you know, I had this demonstrated to me in a very clear way, because it was a beautiful day on Sunday, and I spent part of the day raking leaves in the garden and the rest of the afternoon sitting and reading The New York Times on my front stoop. And everybody who walked by greeted me from the sidewalk, and we had a little conversation, mm-hmm. because everybody is missing this. Mm-hmm. I felt that little jolt of oxytocin, you know, when I was talking to the the little boy in the stroller coming up our little hill of our street and we were talking about the groundhog he chased away last fall from my garden <laughs> or, you know, you have a little conversation with the couple that's just walking up the sidewalk. I don't even know some of these people, but connecting with them even briefly gave me a little sense of pleasure and also reassurance and you can get those little jolts of social interaction in other ways because let's face it if you have people who are really important to you you'll probably connect with them you know via video chat or telephone right and that's super important to do that and there are now all sorts of other ways to do it. you know apps where you can play games together online, or you can have a a Zoom dinner party. There's so many ways that technology can help us now. It's not perfect. It's not, you know, like having a three-course meal with your best friends. But it's really a great replacement for the situation that we're in.
0: Do you worry that we will see a big health crisis? I mean, you've said that You know, loneliness was definitely a problem in the United States even before the coronavirus put many lives on hold or interrupted many lives. Are you worried about a coming health crisis regarding loneliness because of this epidemic?
3: Well, it's interesting. There was about one quarter to a third of Americans who said that they were chronically lonely before this hit us. And obviously, it's not going to improve now that we're all forced to be isolated um, but i think that what's interesting about it is that people are talking about it now we're all feeling the effects so it's my hope that people will be much more conscious of this as we move into the future that they'll realize yeah i really i really need this this is really important to me and you know just the way you know we in the past we've become more conscious of eating healthy food, you know, local food, organic food. It's so important to have exercise at least a few times a week. And now I think it's putting the spotlight on loneliness and social isolation as something that we need to remedy in our lives, whether or not we have a pandemic. In terms of predicting more health problems, really loneliness takes its toll over the long term. But for somebody who's, you know, lived an adult life, a period of six weeks to two months is nothing.
0: What if it goes on longer, though, Susan?
3: I mean, we'll have to find workarounds to it. This period may last longer than any of us had ever imagined, but it won't last forever. You know, you will always remember this time. It will be, like, highlighted as a unique time. Make the most of it, that's what I would say.
0: That's Susan Pinker. She's a developmental psychologist and the author of The Village Effect. You can see her full talk at TED.com. Just as Susan said, like eating, drinking and sleeping, we need social connections. We need meaningful interactions and relationships to fight loneliness. And for architect Grace Kim, that starts with the homes we choose to live in. Let's take a look at this house. It's a nice house.
4: There's a big yard, picket fence, two-car garage. Here's Grace on the TED stage. And for many people around the globe this home it's a dream and yet the danger of achieving this dream is a false sense of connection and an increase in social isolation I know I can hear you now there's somebody in the room screaming at me inside their head that's my house and that's my neighborhood and I know everyone on my block to which I would answer terrific and I wish there were more people like you Because I'd wager to guess there's more people in the room living in a similar situation that might not know their neighbors. I find this incredibly isolating. The concept I'd like to share with you today is an antidote to isolation. This concept is co-housing. Co-housing is an intentional neighborhood where people know each other and look after one another. So let me take you on a tour. From the outside, we look like any other
0: small... Grace designed and built her own co-housing community, an apartment building in Seattle where she lives with her family and eight other families. And today, Grace and her neighbors are hunkered down and practicing social distancing like the rest of us. But a couple months ago, before COVID-19 changed all our lives, she showed us around.
4: And we're in a fairly urban environment, so we have, have this lovely security gate. You know, it's a five-story building, and it's only 4,500 square feet of land. Hi. So on the first level, there's a courtyard, and there's our common house, and two residential units. Larger homes. And you can see everybody's home right now. I always love this time of night because it's, it's like busy town. Oh, everybody's home and, you know, getting ready for dinner or whatever. Um, for whatever reason- and then from the courtyard, when you look up, you can see three more floors of homes, and there are balconies that connect these homes, uh, covering. so you can always kind of see a window into people's homes. It's funny when we do. Our- the balconies are open and look down into the courtyard, and that was intentional because we wanted everyone to be able to see the activity and the life that was happening in the courtyard. We could just sit out. We had a house concert here this summer, and it turns out that these are great balcony seats um, for the musician that plays down in the courtyard. So that was kind of fun.
0: Clearly, Grace put a lot of thought into designing the building, but she says that that was the easy part.
4: I think the harder thing was actually building the community and the social infrastructure that was built on trust and respect and reciprocity. That's a harder thing to do in our society.
5: You hear the bell and then you hear the
4: and We have meals together every other night.
5: There's Parmesan to put the soup is Italian stew and focaccia.
2: Happy birthday, Bella. See you at the
4: party. It was actually a, a pretty lightly attended meal that night. I think there was maybe only like twelve or fifteen people. That's small. That's small. Mm-hmm. Wow. Now what? Yeah. Happy birthday. Jill. And it just happened that that night there was two birthdays being celebrated, and the littlest one had a birthday pinata. So they were doing that out in the courtyard.
5: 27 cakes a year. That's better than I even do with my family.
0: It's interesting. I've kind of always thought of the word home as being a sanctuary, a retreat from the world. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like you have sort of a different definition of home or what it means to you, that word. I actually have the same definition.
4: But I think the physical construct of what that looks like might be different. Mm -hmm. Um, Meaning like in our community, the nine of our families have our individual home, are the four walls that bound what we occupy personally. But we also collectively think of the whole building as our home. And we encourage that from day one. So as soon as you walk in that front gate, you are home, right? The whole building is a sanctuary and a place to feel safe and to feel connected and to feel supported. My family feels that in our home, but I know the rest of the community feels that.
0: I live right on the courtyard, and I love the activity. There's sound and... There's people to play with.
2: We have issues and challenges that come up between adults as they do with children. Um, It's just, it's a very human condition. Um, But there's so much advantage to having these people around you.
0: Just different, less lonely.
4: So whether you're in the common house doing your laundry or making a meal or in the courtyard or on the rooftop, enjoying a glass of wine. There's lots of places in the building that is outside of what other people might consider your home. And yet we are all at home in the building because it's our community.
0: How much are you using architecture in some way to replace the way that we used to live, like the village, the family, all three generations, four generations even, all together. Are you sort of taking your cues from that and um, manufacturing it in some way? Socially engineering it, you mean? No, I mean, it's not bad, right?
4: No, I don't think it's bad because I think our society has pushed us so far into the, you know, you must be independent, the nuclear family. And While I think that there are some positive benefits that I could point to, I would say the negatives far outweigh that. And I know people here that have said they've not ventured outside of a three block radius, you know, because they're a transplant. So they have um, friends and community online or back home, but they've not done anything to form connections here to the place and to the people around them. Like, those are the people when there's a crisis, where do they go? Who do they ask for them to take them to the hospital? You know, and you can certainly pay for things. Of course, you can get a taxi or an Uber, but it also means that you have to be in a society where everything is transactional. There's no social capital to knit us together. And when you're in community, you build that social capital through small little things like a smile or opening a door for somebody. And over time, those become more meaningful connections and more meaningful conversations. That's the thing that makes us human. Otherwise, we could live in this world and just be surrounded by
0: robots. In just a minute, we'll hear how the pandemic and social distancing has kind of brought Grace Kim and her neighbors closer together. On the show today, loneliness. I'm Manoush Zamarodi, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. This episode's sponsor is PwC, which offers the following message. A robot may not be coming for your job, but competitors are coming for your market share. PwC pairs the right tech with the right solutions to help you gain a competitive edge, reimagine operations from the cloud, fuel innovation with responsible AI, and detect risks before they become headlines. Human-led and tech-powered, it's all part of the new equation from PwC. This message comes
4: from NPR sponsor Greenlight. Want to teach your kids financial literacy? With Greenlight, kids and teens use a debit card of their own, while parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and savings in the app. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash NPR.
0: It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Anoush and We were just hearing from architect Grace Kim, who lives in Seattle in a co-housing apartment building with eight other families. She talked about how they support each other, especially in moments of crisis. That was back in February. And at that point, Seattle had already seen its first cases of COVID-19, but we had no idea how big the crisis would get. So we called Grace to see how her community was doing. Grace Kim, repeat performance. Hi. (laughs) It feels like such a long time ago that we spoke, like it was a different universe that we lived in. It was a different universe, exactly. Yeah, so how's it going over there? I mean, presumably when you designed your building and invited all those other families to be part of your life, you didn't anticipate that a pandemic would be one of the tests that faced you and your community. Yeah, that was definitely not on our radar. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um, But I would say that we did anticipate that things wouldn't always be rosy, that people would have difficulties in their lives. Mm. I would say we're not doing the the dinners every other night. Um, we have reverted to doing Zoom meetings to sort of make up for the lack of social time that we have had together.
1: I just wanted to thank uh, everybody for showing up. And I actually, I'm not sure we're actually social distancing, but there is a wall between
4: us. Okay. <laughs> There's a wall, yeah. Our conversations have been pretty deep and a little bit raw and emotional. The last couple of meetings have really um, reinforced that idea of we're in this together and we're going to help each other figure it out.
5: It's great to see everybody. It's just so exciting. I
4: feel
0: way more connected. You know, we're all in this weird situation and I think a lot of people are feeling lonely and isolated right now. So I guess I'm just wondering if that's been on your mind, this idea of feeling lonely. Well, it's interesting. We've been talking with my husband's
4: family or when I talk to my brother who lives in Southern California in the suburbs, and I do feel a little bit sad um, that they are so isolated and they feel it very much. So I know it's inconvenient for me to not be able to see my neighbors on a regular basis, but I don't feel isolated at all. Mm -hmm. The other day we had a huge hailstorm. It was really sudden. And five or six of us were out on the balcony kind of watching in awe and amazement. Um, and just carrying each other and the laughter and the, the surprise that we were all kind of sharing is a very meaningful connection. You know, if we were living somewhere else, we wouldn't have called our friends and said, hey, go outside and look at the, the hail. <laughs> but it's a thing that happens spontaneously. And those kinds of things happen often. So I have not actually felt isolated since this whole thing has started. It's definitely been different, but I do feel like I have the support of our community. I feel like I have those connections. I want more just because we're so used to having more, but I don't feel alone.
0: Right. What is the first thing do you think you'll all do when eventually you can all come together as a community, all 27 of you.
4: We'll probably touch each other a lot. <laughs> I think we've been really missing the the physical like hugs or the hand on your shoulder or whatever. Um, it's been really difficult for the kids not to be like hugging us. So I just miss that interaction of just a, a simple hug. I think that's the biggest thing. We'll probably be together a lot when this is over, um, just wanting to be in each other's company.
0: Grace Kim is an architect and co-founder of Schemata Workshop in Seattle. You can see her full talk at TED.com. On the show today, loneliness and how we can navigate it, especially now when so many people
5: are so isolated. I don't consider myself an expert on many things, but isolation is something I know very well and very intimately. This is Suleika Jawad. I am a writer uh, and most recently the creator of a project called The Isolation Journals.
0: You might remember hearing Suleika's story the last time she was on the show. When she was just 22, Suleika was diagnosed with leukemia, and the next few years meant being isolated from the outside world during her cancer treatment.
5: You know, in addition to the actual cancer itself, it was a battle against boredom. It was a battle against loneliness. Mm-hmm. My my nickname for myself was Bubble Girl because when I was in the hospital, no one was allowed to enter my room without suiting up in a full uh, surgical gown and face mask and gloves, and I wasn't allowed to leave my room at all. Oh, wow. Uh, and it's not until you're confined to a small space that you really start to think about the implications of that isolation. And now, of course, isolation is a reality that we're all living to varying degrees. So for me, I'm having this strange sense of deja vu as the world retreats inside and as I retreat inside um, because this, you know, in in a very different context feels like a very familiar experience for me. Mm. So how did you stay connected to the world while you were sick? So for me, for a long time, I felt really frustrated. Uh, I didn't, you know really see a way that i might be able to do something creative let alone productive within this space uh and i felt very much stuck uh and it was around that time that um some friends and family came up with the idea of doing something called a 100-day project. And the premise of the project was really simple. We were each going to pick a creative project and do that creative thing once a day, every day for a 100 days. Mm. So my mom, who's an artist, decided to paint a small uh, ceramic tile every day. Uh, My dad decided to write a short... Uh, childhood memory about growing up in Tunisia Mm. and I decided to return to what I'd always sort of done from the time I was a child but especially in difficult moments which was journaling Uh, and that you know months later ended up becoming uh, the material that I used to start my column in the New York Times Life Interrupted.
0: So uh, the good news is, eventually, uh, you were discharged. And when you were finally done with treatment, you describe walking into your empty apartment. And there you are alone. You describe it as a moment when you should have felt the most free you ever felt, and yet you felt kind of trapped.
5: Yeah. You know, the image I kept returning to is this famous line from Susan Sontag's illnesses metaphor where she describes how we all have dual citizenship in the kingdom of the sick and in the kingdom of the well. And I very much felt suspended between the two and this sort of no man's land wilderness where I wasn't uh, technically sick anymore but I felt so far from being a healthy, normal 27-year-old girl. Uh, But maybe more than anything, within that wilderness of survivorship, I felt truly isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so what I ended up doing was kind of returning to this idea of the 100-Day Project. And I decided to embark on a 15,000-mile road trip around the United States. Um, And I decided to seek out some of the people and unexpected strangers who'd been writing to me about their own sort of in-between experiences uh, in response to the column.
0: Yeah, like in your talk, you described one person, one of the many, who responded to your column and who you actually went to visit on your road trip. Little GQ, an inmate on death row in Texas, he wrote you about how much he related to your experience of being quarantined in the hospital. Can you tell us about that?
5: Yeah, so Little GQ uh, was one of the first people to write to me. And at that point, he had been on death row in solitary confinement for almost half his life. Um, and he wrote to me about this unexpected parallels between our circumstances and about how in very different contexts uh, we were in these small confined rooms. For me, it happened to be a hospital room and for him, of course, it was a cell. Um, And about this experience of staring down your mortality um, and beyond that, Mm. trying to figure out how to hold on to a sense of self and a sense of sanity within these tiny, confined spaces. Mm. He'd never been sick a day in his life. Here's to like a Jawad on the TED stage. But he related to what I described in one column as my incanceration and to the experience of being confined to a tiny, fluorescent room. I know that our situations are different, he wrote to me but the threat of death lurks in both of our shadows. I went to Texas and I visited little GQ on death row. He asked me what I did to pass all that time I'd spent in a hospital room. When I told him I got really, really good at Scrabble, he said, me too and explained how even though he spends most of his days in solitary confinement, he and his neighboring prisoners make board games out of paper and call out their plays through their meal slots. A testament to the incredible tenacity of the human spirit and our ability to adapt with creativity. I think that um, when you find yourself in these circumstances... You have to get creative. You have to find workarounds. And that's very much, I think, the time that we're all living in now. All of us just trying to adapt uh, to these new restrictions and this new way of moving through the world that we're all having to kind of take on.
0: Yeah, it feels like there's nothing like a crisis for people to put aside their differences. Not entirely, but in in many ways, to find common points of humanity. And I guess I'm wondering, like, do you think people today are connecting more over the fact that we're all confined and isolated? We are all experiencing a sort of collective loneliness? Yeah,
5: I think that we're all in this moment where we're grappling with the same themes uh, and the same fears. Yeah even if we're coming at them from different perspectives. And I think that there is an opportunity within that to be connected. Uh, So I'm, you know, talking to you right now from my parents' house in upstate New York. And within a few days of arriving here, I opened the mailbox one day, and we had a note from a neighbor who we'd never met before Mm. that said... I just want you to know that I'm here. If you need anything, if you need groceries, here's my email, here's my cell phone number. Um, We're so grateful to be in this community and we want you to know that uh, we're here for you. And that neighbor left that note in every single person's mailbox on our block. And it struck me that likely I've lived a few blocks away from this person for years, um, and that it's not until uh, this pandemic that we've had the opportunity to actually come together.
0: I want to ask you about what the project that you've launched this spring, um, it's called the Isolation journals. Can you tell us about it and, and what
5: inspired you to start it? Yeah. So because I am very immunocompromised uh, due to a bone marrow transplant, I uh, moved into the attic of my parents' house. Mm. And so I found myself in this attic and um, alone and I began to kind of reflect on how familiar that isolation felt to me Mm. and so I came up with this project very much inspired by the 100 day project Uh, it's a 30 day creativity project um, where I decided I would tap into my network of writer, artist, and musician friends and asked them to each contribute a journaling prompt. Um, and we launched, and within 24 hours, we had 30,000 people signed up for the isolation journals. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so I think, you know, there's the, the solidarity of... Uh, committing to a creative practice with tens of thousands of strangers who are doing it alone and together um, within this surreal and strange time that we find ourselves in.
0: You know, as you're explaining how this project works, I keep thinking about this idea of transforming loneliness into enjoying solitude, because I think there's a Big difference between solitude and loneliness do, do you
5: think do you agree with that yeah I you know I think loneliness is something that often feels uh not just difficult but involuntary and yeah. I think the shift from that to solitude which you know solitude is something that um can feel not just extraordinarily generative um, and empowering, but it's something that we choose. And so I think this project is just one small way that people are trying to figure out how to make that transition from isolation and loneliness to solitude and creative solitude.
0: That's Suleika Jawad. She's a writer and the creator of The Isolation Journals. You can hear her whole story on our episode, Moving Forward, or watch her full talk at TED.com. Thanks so much for being here with me for this week's show on loneliness. If you'd like to find out more about who was on it, go to TED.npr.org. And to see hundreds more TED Talks, check out TED.com or the TED app. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Sanaz Meshkinpour, Rachel Faulkner, Diba Motasham, James Delahoussi, JC Howard, Katie Monteleone, Maria Paz Gutierrez, Christina Kala, Kiera Brown, and Hannah Bolaños, with help from Daniel Shukin and producer Lisa Gray in Seattle. Our intern is Matthew Cloutier. Our theme music was written by Ramteen Arablui. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, Colin Helms, Anna Phelan, and Michelle Quint. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators' Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success.